Gray Matters. My name's Tyler, and in nine years, I'll be an alcoholic. I'll start drinking in middle school, just at parties. But my parents won't start talking to me about it till high school. Kids who drink before age 15 are five times more likely to have alcohol Tyler, problems when they're and adults. in nine years, thing is, I'll be an alcoholic. My parents won't even see I'll it start coming. Drinking in middle school. So start talking before they start drinking. To learn more, go to StopAlcoholAbuse.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the Ad Council, and this station. Well, we never thought we'd get here, but the White Panthers made me come, and now they forced me, and you're listening to WCBN-FM, Ann Arbor, and this is their hostage, Genesis Briar Purich. <laughs> To Gray Matters, your weekly current events, media analysis, talk show, commentaries, etc. My name is Jim Dwyer, and I'll be uh, telling you about uh, some developments in Iraq tonight, courtesy of Patrick Coburn, who travels extensively in the region and writes for the uh, Counterpunch uh, website and uh, newsletter. Uh, as well as talk a little bit about William Kunstler tonight. Uh, next week, of course, we'll actually at the end of this week, the 28th of June is going to mark the centenary of the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand of the Austro-Hungarian Empire uh, in Bosnia by a Serbian, and of course that's the Kickstarter event for the signature episode in the spasm of the history of Western civilization, once known as the Great War, now referred to in this country at any rate as World War I. 
uh, or sometimes enthusiastically, euphemistically, nostalgically, as the war to end all wars, really as uh, the starting point of the world as we know it today, and as events continue to unfold in the manner in which they do in Iraq, one of those nations carved up out of the remnants of colonial holdings and ideological enterprises doomed from the get-go. Uh, we see the effects of World War I still very much a part of our everyday lives. Uh, and so next week we'll be uh, airing a uh, special two-part program on the uh, opening of that war. Of course, we'll talk about it as often as we feel we need to and as often as, again, current events point the way towards uh, the necessary reconsideration of these facts. Uh, and so I will go now to uh, something that is on the counterpunch.org website. Obviously, it's available to anyone, but I feel this is worth sharing. Patrick Coburn is a brother of the late Alexander Coburn and has written for a number of years uh, for Counterpunch, uh, which, of course, Alexander uh, co-founded. Um, Patrick Coburn is also the author of Muqtada, uh, a biography of Muqtada al-Sadr, the Shia revival, and the struggle for Iraq. He has lived in Iraq. He speaks the language. And unlike um, lots of people who uh, offer up their blithe opinions about why America should just jump right into another war in the Mideast. Uh, this guy actually knows what he's talking about. And so I'll read his piece entitled Iraq, the Great Unraveling. Uh, Dateline Baghdad. Iran's spiritual leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, uh, Khamenei, has warned against U.S. intervention in Iraq. But U.S. officials suspect that Iran wants to use its cooperation in political changes uh, in Baghdad to extract concessions in negotiations on Iran's nuclear program. The Independent has learned that the U.S. officials have told Iraqi leaders, uh, forgive me here, uh, U.S. officials have told Iraqi leaders that the Iranians are linking their agreement to the departure of Iraqi Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki seen as being under Iranian influence, to greater flexibility by the U.S. in talks on the level of uranium enrichment permitted to Iran. Quote, the main dispute in Iraq is between those who want Iraq to join the U.S. camp and those who seek an independent Iraq, said Khamenei, in words that could be interpreted as supporting the political status quo here. He added, quote, the U.S. aims to bring its own blind followers to power. Close quote. The next few weeks are likely to prove decisive in determining the future political leadership of Iraq as Maliki, prime minister since 2006, seeks a third term in office despite recent disasters that have seen him lose control of the north and west of his country. Speaking during a trip to Cairo today, and this is dated June 23rd, 2014, uh, the U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry said America wanted the Iraqi people to find a leader that represented all the country's communities and is, quote, prepared to be inclusive and share power, close quote, editorial insertion by myself. Ha, ha, ha. Alas. 
Back to Coburn's article. There is no sign of the offensive by an Islamic state of Iraq and Levant. Levant, uh, that word, uh, refers to the eastern basin of the Mediterranean. Uh, it's a historical term uh, going back to ancient times. And uh, this group is being called ISIS, and as they're calling it in uh, some translations or iterations of it, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. Here it's listed as Iraq and Levant, uh, which makes me wonder what actual term is being used in the original in the Arabic. Uh, I'll have to look into that. So I'll begin this paragraph again. There is no sign of the offensive by the Islamic State of Iraq and Levant, ISIS, which has turned into a general Sunni revolt coming to an end. ISIS has ceased to make spectacular gains north of Baghdad, but it is mopping up towns previously under government control in the giant western Sunni province of Anbar. There were reports yesterday that ISIS had taken two key border crossings, Al-Walid and Turayabil, on the Syrian and Jordanian borders, respectively. In the last few days, ISIS and Sunni tribal forces have also taken Al-Qaim on the border with Syria, Rutba, a truck stop town on the main highway to Jordan, Rawa and Anna on the Euphrates. This brings the armed opposition close to the dam at Haditha, which the Iraqi army says it has sent an extra 2,000 troops to defend. Sunni rebels control dams on the upper reaches of the Euphrates, which gives them the capacity to flood or deprive of water the Shia heartlands in the southern half of the Mesopotamian plain. The mood in the Iraqi capital continues to be panicky. There were trucks leaving the city piled high with the belongings of people seeking safety elsewhere. There is a big traffic jam outside the passport office as people look for travel documents. Prices in the markets have shot up because Baghdad receives much of its food supplies from Turkey, and the North and ISIS have cut the roads. Probably untrue government propaganda on television creates a vacuum of information, rapidly filled by rumors. The latest is that there will be a government offensive aimed at retaking Saluhuddin, uh, province starting on the 29th of June. Residents of ISIS-held towns and cities like Baiji and Tikrit fear a government counteroffensive may use tactics similar to those employed by the Syrian armed forces and launch an indiscriminate bombardment against Sunni population centers. Iraq has effectively broken up, and some people are on the wrong side of the line. One family in Baghdad recently got a message by phone from their son Najim, age 22, who is in a unit of the Iraqi army which has fallen back from Mosul city to villages outside. Najim said he was literally starving and needed money to buy food from village stores. His family sent him about 100 pounds. Iraq has not only been at war, but its three main fragments, Sunni, Shia, and Kurdish, are at war with each other or think they might be at any minute. The government and predominantly Shia forces are engaged in a full-scale conflict with ISIS and the five or six million strong Sunni Arab community who make up a fifth of the Iraqi population. The Kurds have taken advantage of the crisis to take territory disputed with the Arabs. But the Kurds are only intermittently at war with ISIS, which wants to concentrate its forces against the Baghdad government. As a result, in a city like Bakuba, the capital of the Shia Sunni Kurdish Diyala province, 
Different parts of the city are held by ISIS, the Iraqi army, and the Kurdish Peshmerga soldiers, militia. <clears throat> Iraqis see themselves as being the playthings of foreign powers, and particularly of the U.S. and Iran. Washington and Tehran have a complex record of open confrontation combined with intermittent and covert cooperation in Iraq. Both countries wanted to get rid of Saddam Hussein and were glad when he went. Both supported the Shia Kurdish government that replaced him and opposed the Sunni revolt between 2004 and 2008. But the U.S. and Iran have also competed to be the predominant influence in Iraq with unfortunate results for the country. Maliki is a product of this strange relationship. He was appointed by the U.S. in 2006, but was also a man who Iran could get on with. After the 2010 election, he served a second term as prime minister because of his acceptability to Washington and Tehran. At election time, Maliki has been prepared to play the sectarian card as the communal chief of the Shia faced by a Sunni counter-revolution. Discrimination and persecution alienated the Sunni community, but until 2011 there was nothing much they could do about it. However, it is always dangerous to humble any of Iraq's communities because they will wait for their moment to strike back. The Sunni of Iraq found the balance of power in the region turning in their favor after the revolt of the Sunni in Syria from 2011. Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Qatar, and Turkey were prepared to give financial and military aid to the Syrian rebels, and this reignited the rebellion in Iraq. ISIS, as its name implies, straddles the border and has created a sort of proto-caliphate that reaches from the Tigris River to the outskirts of Aleppo in Syria. Washington and Tehran are horrified by this new development, but are finding it difficult to cooperate to stop it. Since the U.S. supports the Syrian opposition, and the Syrian opposition is dominated by ISIS and al-Qaeda groups, Iranians wonder if the U.S. might not be complicit in the ISIS blitzkrieg that destabilized Maliki and his Shia-dominated pro-Iranian government. In reality, the differences between the U.S. and Iran in Iraq, Syria, and over Iran's nuclear program cross-infect each other, so negotiations over all three topics are bound to be interrelated. But cooperation with Iran remains politically toxic in the U.S. When Mohammed uh, Nahavandian, chief to, of staff to Iran's president, Hassan Rouhani, suggested last week that nuclear talks and the Iraqi crisis were connected, the State Department rejected any linkage. Probably in the long term, the U.S. and Iran could work out some semi-secret accommodation on Iraq. The problem is that a high degree of cooperation is needed immediately because the barbarians in the shape of ISIS are at the gates of Baghdad. And that's a historical reference to uh, earlier sacks of this uh, ancient uh, and historic city. Cooperation is needed to see Maliki depart as prime minister when the Iraqi parliament meets and the installation of a new and effective Iraqi government. Khamenei is suggesting this would be a pro-Iranian prime minister being replaced by a pro-American one, and this should therefore be resisted by Iran. 
in practice, any new Iraqi leader will have to get on with Americans and Iranians. Whatever happens, Maliki will have to go after the humiliating defeats of the last fortnight. Quote, the Iranians argue that the first priority is to defend Baghdad and later deal with the leadership question, close quote, says one Iraqi observer who did not want his name published. Another priority is to prevent Iraq being engulfed in a sectarian civil war much like that in Syria. Maliki is demonstrably not the man to stop this happening, but the longer he stays, the more it becomes inevitable. It may already be too late. And those are the words of Patrick Coburn, writing in the, essentially, the weekend edition. No, this is Monday's uh, front page of counterpunch.org. America's well, uh, it's an investigative journal, a political newsletter in the tradition of uh, I.F. Stone's Weekly. Well, it's 646. You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor, and the program is Gray Matters. Quick reminder that uh, there's a lot of activities and events going on throughout Ann Arbor uh, during this time of year in the build-up towards the oh-so-lovely art fair in late July. There are events most nights down at uh, Washington Street there in front of the Rackham Auditorium, top of the park, films, live music, and actually in association with this uh, summer fest, as it's called here in Ann Arbor, WCBN is participating in a series of book readings, the series of music uh, criticism and commentary uh, called 33 and a Third. Each uh, slender volume is uh, focused uh, on and devoted to a classic recording by an important artist. And a series, a handful of these books have been chosen from the series. And uh, tonight at 7 p.m. over at Arbor Brewing Company, uh, you can hear Ingrid Racine read... Uh, the book about Joni Mitchell's album Court and Spark. And there will be music provided by WCBN DJ Mars Doritas, co-host with me on A Robot Pasta on Saturdays at 5. So free events, culture, of course, is uh, what makes this city such a pleasant one in which to live. Even though there are... No problem free spots anywhere in the world. Uh, there's at least enough stuff to do in Ann Arbor to uh, sort of take most of the edge off. Well, uh, it's 648, and uh, if there's time, I think there should be. I would like to briefly uh, rattle through Bruce Jackson's piece uh, about Bill Kunstler. Actually, it's also about the Central Park Five, and so... Um, this is from the same edition of Counterpunch. I'm going to quickly go through this because for various reasons I've been thinking a lot about William Kunstler lately, who uh, died prematurely. I suppose he uh, was a heavy, heavy smoker, but of course he was uh, an exceptional individual, um, did a lot of uh, pro bono legal work for political radicals, leftists, the new left particularly. Uh, he was articulate, passionate, and just uh, uh, an amazing historical figure. And uh, 
here is Bruce Jackson's piece entitled Central Park Five, Bill Kunstler's Last Case. According to the June 19th New York Times, quote, the five men whose convictions in the brutal 1989 beating and rape of a female jogger in Central Park were later overturned have agreed to a settlement of about $40 million from New York City to resolve a bitterly fought civil rights lawsuit over their arrests and imprisonment in the sensational crime, close quote. Civil rights attorney William R. Kunstler defended El Sayada A. Nocer, the man accused but not convicted of, killing Meyer Kahan, founder of the right-wing Jewish Defense League, and also founder of the even more right-wing Israeli anti-Arab party, Koch. I remember leaving Kunstler's Lower Manhattan House one Sunday on my way to get bagels and the Times and being greeted by about 15 JDL members who screamed at me, looking just like Hitler time Jugend. I photographed them. This is not my historical imagination. They shouted, self-hating Jew, self-hating Jew. They didn't know who I was. They didn't know whether or not I was Jewish. They were just out there in the street spewing hatred. Only the presence of a few New York City cops who were clearly embarrassed at having to be part of that circus let me get our uh, out and back into the house with the newspaper and the bagels. That was ugly, but in all the time I knew Bill, the case he got the most heat for from his friends was when he was appellate lawyer for Youssef Salam, one of the so-called Central Park Five. Today's Times article said that the settlement was, quote, bitterly fought. That was by the administration of Mayor Michael R. Bloomberg, not by new Mayor Bill de Blasio, who is obviously trying to make this stain on the city go away as quickly as possible. Why did it take so many years? Why did Bloomberg fight this case until his last day in office, insisting that because the cops and prosecutors had gone after these kids, quote, kids, quote, in good faith, close quote, the city could not be held responsible for the theft of their youth? Why did the prosecutor in the case, after the detailed confession from the real villain, Matthias Reyes, who had been convicted of rape and murder previously, not back off and say, quote, we screwed up. Let's do justice. Let's do what we can to make this right. The Times article refers to the five men, quote unquote, but at the time of the event, they were all 14 to 16 years old. For me, that's not men, it's boys, kids, people we should protect. They got no protection from the city of New York then or later. The New York City DA's office has known since December 2002 that the five were innocent. Unambiguous DNA evidence proved that it had been done by Matthias Reyes. Four of the five kids did seven years in prison. One did 13. They are men now. They weren't when New York's uh, justice system did to them what the prosecutor said they'd done to the Central Park jogger. The justice system, as any lawyer knows, isn't about guilt or innocence. It's about winning and losing. The cops hold a kid all night, as in this case, refusing to let him see uh, the family waiting downstairs and whom he is asking to see, or a lawyer, or anybody. They promise that if you just sign here, you won't do any time. You'll go home with your grandmother. You're 14. You're scared. You're exhausted. You trust them, so you sign. The cops who got you to do that suffers no penalty when years later, it turns out, as in this case, the kid who had been psychologically tortured all night was, as he insisted until he was worn down, innocent. That's why Bill said he was engaged in this case. He told me that. I remember close friends saying, Quote, rape trumps politics. You shouldn't be defending this guy. And Bill saying, you don't know that he's guilty. They didn't let him talk to anybody. A 14-year-old kid. Kids have rights, too. 
close quote. Bill was simply, uh, wasn't simply defending an accused rapist. He was defending the rights of all of us to be treated fairly by a system with almost infinite power. The only thing that protects us from that infinite power are the first 10 amendments to the Constitution. When the police, the secret agents, feel free to ignore the protections of those amendments, we are all at risk, not just poor kids of color, all of us. That's what Bill Kunstler was really about. The prosecutor, like the cop who was nabbed, uh, like the cop who has nabbed what he or she believes is a villain, who learns there is exculpatory evidence, who fights to hide or disregard such evidence, and fights instead to preserve the honor of the office, suffers no penalty for that huge mistaken effort. The prosecutor has protected the office and is rewarded for that. Michael Bloomberg, a billionaire who took office in 2002, the same year the exculpatory evidence was known to the authorities, fought against justice for the Central Park Fire the entire time he was in office. He incurs no penalty for his disregard for justice either. To whom does he answer? Surely not the victims. Not to the woman, savage in Central Park, whose real violator was ignored by the system. Or the five kids whose lives were damaged by the system's disregard for them as human beings. Everyone who is in prison says, quote, I'm doing time. Talk to someone who has been in prison and ask, quote, where were you? And they say, I've been doing time. What should be a noun is answered with a verb. There is no way money can compensate for that linguistic shift. You can replace a Honda or a picnic table or a backpack. You cannot replace a year or a decade of someone's life. That's what Bill Kunstler was fighting for. From the first time someone got him to go south and defend bus riders in a place white folks thought buses had two zones. He went there, and he never came back. Bill believed in the justice system. That always amazed, astonished, and inspired me. Once, when we were loafing in Oaxaca, I asked him how he felt going up against those juries in the Deep South. He said that as long as he could get real evidence in front of a jury, he pretty much believed they'd do the right thing. If he ever stopped believing that, he said he'd give up law and do something else. I guess he never stopped believing that because he was doing law right up to the end. The hard part was getting the evidence out where people could see it. In the case of the Central Park Five, New York City fought for a long time to keep that from happening. Now, unless someone higher up in the government kills this settlement, the people in city government who waged that fight have lost. There is a settlement. Money will change hands. But those five kids, who are men now, lost years of their lives, and money will never buy that back. There are no winners in this sorry story, and Bill, who died in 1995, turns out to have been right all along. That's Bruce Jackson writing in Counterpunch, a piece called Central Park Five, Bill Kunstler's Last Case. Well, that's just going to about do it for Gray Matters tonight. Join us next week when we begin a two-part series on the complicated origins, backgrounds, uh, contexts, and so forth for the opening salvo of World War One: the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. I guess I should have closed with a piece of music by the Scottish rock band Franz Ferdinand, but instead... You're going to hear a few minutes of something from Brian Eno's new record and a brain damage award to Rolling Stone magazine for such a slight review of what is really quite a pleasant uh, album here. So this is Brian Eno and Carl Hyde 
from their new record, Someday World. You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. This has been Gray Matters. Stay tuned for Yazoo City Calling, coming up next. I miss you again, again. 